Welcome back to the Deliberate Leaders Podcast. I am your host and executive business coach, Allison Dunn. Our guest today is Doug Knoll. Our topic is de-escalate, how to calm an angry person in 90 seconds or less. Doug is an award-winning author, teacher, trainer, and highly experienced mediator. He is the co-founder of Prison of Peace and creator of de-escalate emotional people, which acronym is deep skills. Doug, thank you so much for joining us here today. Allison, it's great to be here and share some of my wisdom with your audience. I'm excited. We just had a fantastic conversation about all of the things that um, you like to do for extracurricular activities that I'm actually still a little bit blown away. We're going <laughs> to go into a deep conversation, de-escalate, and all of the things you do are were right. a little disconnected for me. So I'm I'm <laughs> I'm eager to dive into this. Um, so de-escalate. How do you just de-escalate an you know an anger situation in 90 seconds or less? Three steps. Mm-hmm. Step number one, ignore the words. Mm-hmm. We've heard those angry words over and over again. There is no new news here, right? So we can af- afford to ignore the angry words. And when we ignore what they're saying, we don't ignore the person, but we ignore the words. We're less likely to get triggered ourselves. Okay. And we free up bandwidth for the next two steps. So we learn to make those angry, insulting words, um, white noise. Next step is to read the emotional data fields. And what that means is that you empty your mind and you just sit. And your brain will, within a second or two, begin to process the emotional experience that this angry person is having. And emotions will start to flow into your head. Now, I have a way of teaching. When I teach this, there's a way of structuring that data so you can make faster sense of it. But even if you don't know how to do that, our, our, our brains are highly attuned to the emotions of others because of evolutionary biology. Um, most people don't know that we humans only develop the ability to talk, speech, vocabulary, 230,000 years ago. I mean, like an eye blink. And how did the hominids communicate for the four or five million dollar, four or five million years we've been on the planet before then? They did it through emotions and emotional expression. So our brain is, has evolved to read other people's emotions with uh, very fast, very efficiently and, and effortlessly. So we're going to read the emotions. Emotions start coming up. You start seeing what this person is starting, start, starting obviously with angry. And then the third step, which is the secret sauce, and the part that's really counterintuitive and counter-normative, and that is to tell them what they're feeling with the use statement. So... I would say something like this. Let's suppose, Allison, that you were really angry. I'd say, Allison, you're really angry. You're really frustrated. You're pissed off. You feel completely disrespected and ignored. Nobody's listening to you. You feel completely unappreciated and unsupported. And you're worried and concerned and a little anxious. And you're feeling a little embarrassed about this whole thing. And you're sad and distressed and upset. And you feel completely abandoned and all alone and unloved and rejected and betrayed. I'm not even feeling any of those things. And you just totally like emotionally made me feel like there's something in there I could relate to. And that I felt, I felt validated and I don't even, I'm not angry. I know it's amazing how it works, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, And now to the outsider, it looks weird 
because here I am telling you what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And the, well, the quick answer is no, you don't. When people are very angry, they don't know what they're feeling. They become alexithemic. It's a condition where they can't even name their own emotions. If you've ever noticed, or you've seen this, where, gee, Allison, how are you feeling right now? And you'll just flare up in anger because in frustration because you don't know what you're feeling. You're, I'm asking you a question you can't answer. What happens at the, in, at the level of the brain is that when we become emotional, um, the emotional centers of our brain are commanding immediate action and attention because it senses some kind of danger. Maybe it's a physical danger, maybe it's a social danger. And that shuts down the, the prefrontal cortex, executive function of our brain, and we're cut off from the part of our brain that can analyze our physical experiences, our feelings, and be able to monitor what we're experiencing emotionally. And now we, we just revert back to five-year-olds. Whatever we learned as a five-year-old is where we go back to because we haven't developed the skills mm -hmm. to manage our own emotions. And when I affect label, this is called affect labeling. The technique is called affect labeling. When I affect label you, label your emotions, tell you what you're feeling, it has a profound effect on every single human brain. Number one, it calms the emotional centers. So the emotional centers of the brain come down, they're inhibited. At the same time, a part of the brain called the right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex is activated. And all of a sudden, you're calm. And it takes less than 90 seconds. It actually takes less than 30 seconds. Um, and, and no brain is immune to this because we're all hardwired the same way. It's not based on culture or gender or anything else based on our biophysiology. And it's absolutely incredible how it works. Um, so I, I've captured all three steps. I guess my clarification question on step number three is you you said several layers of things. That's right. That's how you structure the data. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me, let, me, let me go through that with you. Yeah. So I teach, there are two kinds of data, structured data and unstructured data. Our brains do not do well with unstructured data. So I can tell you to read the emotions, but if I don't give you a, a way to put that emotions into a structure, you're going to flail and flounder. So the structure that I give you is based on emotional layering. There's six layers. The top layer is anger. The second layer is disrespect. The third layer is fear, the fear emotions. The fourth layer is shame, shame emotions. The fifth layer are the sadness emotions, and the last layer is betrayal betray, or abandonment emotions. And each each of these layers has different words and different gradations. So, for example, with in anger, you could have anger, frustration, annoyance, irritation, rage, hatred. In the disrespect emotions, you could have disrespect, not being heard, being ignored, not being appreciated, not being supported, feeling like you were treated unfairly or unjustly. In the fear emotions, fear, anxiety, concern, worry. In the uh, shame emotions, shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. Sadness would be sadness, grief, upset, distress, depressed. Mm -hmm. um, and then we get to the last layer, which is the deepest layer, abandonment, unloved, rejected, and feeling unlovable and completely all alone. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to have many words to do this. That's probably a total of 18 words, 20 words. And when you layer it that way, and then when, when the way you do this is you start with the with the emotion that's presenting. So in the case of anger, okay. you start with anger. But maybe somebody's just feeling 
they feel like they're really they're they're sad or they feel or they're anxious or worried or maybe they feel like they've been ignored and they're feeling disrespected you start wherever they're at and you just keep labeling and notice that i didn't use any i statements i didn't ask any questions all i did was label and the way you start off either somebody's really mad or maybe somebody's just emotional like this works really well on children what's going on that's all you do so tell me what's going on the person starts to tell a story and you immediately start labeling their emotions you don't wait you the moment you sense an emotion you label it you're literally going to interrupt them but here's the thing because we're listening and not in conversation a separate set of rules applies to listening that we've never been taught before. And that is you can, as long as you're using a use statement, you can interrupt and tell people what they're feeling and they will never feel interrupted ever. And it's totally counterintuitive to everything we think we know about listening. And the idea of using a use statement, telling you what you're feeling is counter-normative because we were taught as children not to be pretentious or to be manipulative or to be rude and and all this stuff flies in the face of all that childhood programming okay the fact is that childhood programming has nothing to do with listening which is one of the reasons why people are such poor listeners is because they're applying the the wrong rules they were never taught in the first place but they're applying the wrong conventions to the listening process in um in the use statements that you or making, I kind of wish I'd like made paid more attention because you listed so oh, many yeah. things. Um, <laughs> so was it you, you, were, you, were, you were angry or is it? I start out with, I start out with you're angry, you're frustrated, you're pissed off. Okay, got but it. I, it's going to happen every single, and the other thing on this point, every, we humans have a very limited repertoire of emotions and behaviors. It looks like chaos until you're trained. And once you're trained, you see it, you say, oh my God, this is so ob- obvious what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So just to, and you can see that I can just repeat it because there's so there's not that much there. You're angry, frustrated, pissed off. You feel disrespected, ignored, not heard, unappreciated, unsupported. And then I went to, and you're a little worried and anxious. Then I went to, and you're feeling a little embarrassed. And then I went to, you're sad and upset and distressed. And then I went to, and you feel completely abandoned, all alone, unlovable, and completely rejected. Yeah, I just went right through the layers. Oh, totally. Interesting. Interesting. Like that. You, have ch- you have children? I think I, I, uh, I do. Yeah. How old are they? If you don't mind. Uh, how old? What ages are they? Um, 23, oh, 25, 28. You look too young to have children. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. But I really do. Um, do they have Do they have any children of their own yet? Yes. So we've got um, two one-year-olds. Okay. Not quite old enough yet. But when they turn two and they start verbalizing, Mm -hmm. you start telling them how they feel. And what the research research shows is that parents and grandparents who affect label their children starting between two and four years old, by the time the children reach 12, are two grade levels ahead of their their peers academically. Interesting. Does that seem to me? They have the emotional maturity of a 21-year-old. They're extremely well-liked. Okay. They have huge amount of resilience. And they have really high levels of emotional intelligence for their age. Um, I I love what you're talking about. I 
I am someone who often um, uses the positive side of things. So I would be very, maybe more uncomfortable in saying, oh, you're, you're angry, you're distraught, you're even you're going down that line. Mm-hmm. But I go like, you're so excited. You're on fire. You look so yeah. happy. You are, you know what I mean? That yeah. feels natural to me. Yeah, that would. And you do that with children and it works like yeah. a, if you want to stop a tantrum. I've got emails from parents saying once they learn how to epic label their children, two year, two year old tantrums went away in four months, never to return. You've got a child having a meltdown. Meltdowns are meltdowns are important for children. It's the brain's way of protecting the child. Mm-hmm. So we see these meltdowns as being horrific and embarrassing, and the little monster and the terrible twos. Uh-uh. They're they're essential to brain development. But the way you manage it is to tell the child you're really upset, you're really angry, you're tired, you're frustrated, in age appropriate language, and with literally within thirty seconds, it's over with. Okay. And every time you do it, you're helping that child build emotional vocabulary, which is a really powerful skill that very few children get to experience. There, go ahead. Um, there is, um, so the gift I gave to all of my, um, my girls this year was, um, Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown, which talks about, um, definitions and understanding of emotions. Right which I feel like even at my age that I'm at, there's words that I go like, I'm misusing that word or I'm misunderstanding that word. And it's been very eye-opening to give new words, to realize words for emotions that I have that maybe I've not been pinpointing correctly. It's just a simple matter of associating your own experience, your own emotional experience with that word. It's called building an emotional database. And so we can we can have an abstract idea of these words of emotion, but unless we associate it with the affective experience that we're having in our bodies, it really doesn't mean anything. And we can't use it in affect labeling. And that's the that's the job of the two-year-old. Because at right around 18 months or two years old, the emotional centers of the brain start to come online. We're not born with emotions. I should say that out, outright. We are not born with emotions. We have to construct emotions as cognitive constructs. And that starts at 18 months. And so we have to start associating words with various feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness that we have, which is called affect. We are born with affect. And that's the, that's the maturation process. And if that process gets stunted, then we have children who are going to be emotionally immature as adults. And that's the way many, many, many people are, because they unfortunately live in families where emotions are, are invalidated. Emotions are considered evil or wrong or bad or irrational, which is a funny word because there's no such thing as rationality, which cracks me up. I teach I teach a graduate course in decision-making and I make that very clear to my students right away. Um, but there's another area where this is really powerful and this is in your wheelhouse and leadership. I teach these skills as a way of teaching people how to use leadership empathy. What do you do when you, you're a leader and you walk into a room full of people? Maybe it's a team, maybe it's a board meeting, maybe it's a, a customer team or whatever. And you immediately sense there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. You can actually ethic label the group in exactly the same way. You could say you guys are really frustrated, you're really angry, you're upset. You, you don't feel heard or listened to, you don't feel appreciated. You're really worried and concerned. And they'll start nodding their heads. Yeah. And then at that point in time, they're ready to listen. If you just march in and start talking and don't listen first, 
they're going to just shut you down, whether they're your direct reports, your board, your customers, whoever they are. When I teach this to salespeople, so for the first five minutes of your call, just listen and listen to and reflect the emotions. Don't sell anything. Don't talk. Just don't even ask any questions. Just listen. And they get amazing results. Because to your point, as you saw at the, at the top of the, uh, of the show, it, they, the customer feels deeply validated. You really get me. You really understand me. Yeah. And they're willing to do anything for you. It's almost like a, a way to create a common connection of really just putting out there what it is that you can see that they're thinking and, and feeling. That's correct. You create instant trust, yeah. instant rapport, instant in intimacy. And in personal relationships, it's, of course, it's powerful. How, yeah. I, I mean, my promise to anybody who wants to learn this is you will never have another fighter argument again in your life, ever, ever. My wife and I both use these skills. We, we never have fights. I'd love to be in your household, just, you know, like watching that all, that all happen between the two of you. Um, I'm, um, I'm a lover, not a fighter. So I will, I will admit that I'm, I'm not one to engage in anything like nothing, you know, I'm not combustive, I guess. And right. I, I probably repel that a little bit and anyone that I see that in, um, but it is great to have some tools to, to, uh, what's the word you use to de-escalate? It's a, what a great, amazing tip. And, you know, it's great to be a lover rather than a fighter, but there's sometimes when you can't run. You have to. You have to avoid Correct. it. So what do you do? Right. You, now you, in my view, you are expressing the deepest kind of love and compassion for this other person by listing them into existence. Mm -hmm. And when you listen them into existence, they feel deeply validated, deeply heard. They they feel like you really get them. They calm down, and you've strengthened the relationship rather than weakened the relationship, which could happen by avoidance or running away or fighting back. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, I am just curious, uh, what are some of the attributes of what you would consider to be an emotionally competent person? Three, three skills. Mm -hmm. The ability to recognize and name your own emotions. Okay. The ability to regulate your emotions. That doesn't mean suppress or repress, okay. but it does mean that you can act against an emotional impulse to do something different. Like if you're really angry and frustrated, you can you can resist that impulse and stay calm. And third, the ability to demonstrate and utilize cognitive and affective empathy, which is which is nothing more than affect labeling. Cognitive empathy is nothing more than the ability to read, assimilate, interpret, understand, and reflect back the emotional experience of another person. Affect labeling. The beauty of affect labeling is that as you start to practice it, you learn how to recognize your own emotions and you learn emotional regulation and it all happens automatically without effort. Don't go out and spend $10,000 on an emotional intelligence course that won't teach you anything. Just simply learn how to affect label and within two months of constant practice, you will be emotionally confident and your life will change forever. 
So I love the fact, because this kind of leads into my next question. When we talk about leadership, right? We talk about people who are emotionally intelligent and um, we're distinguishing that there's a difference between emotional intelligence and emotional competence. That's correct. The, The distinction is this, emotional intelligence is a test. And it was devised by uh, Mayor and Salovey back in the 1983. Okay. And um, University of New Hampshire, and I think Salovey is now the- I dean. love that, UNH, my hometown. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I went to Dartmouth. Oh, uh, did you? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and they were looking at different kinds of social intelligences. So they defined emotional intelligence as a form of social intelligence that can be measured mm-hmm. on a scale. And they're- Mayor Salovey Caruso emotional intelligence test is sort of the the goldstone, the lodestone for testing this stuff. Well, Goldman picked this up, Daniel Goldman picked this up in his book, 1995 book, EQ, why it's more important than IQ, and commercialized emotional intelligence. But what he probably realized, because he's a PhD too, he's not, he's not stupid, what what he touted emotional intelligence but what what people don't understand is you can't learn emotional intelligence just like i you can't learn iq right right but you can learn emotional competency which are the skills that if properly developed will allow you to score well on an emotional intelligence assessment so that's why i talk about emotional competency and the skills of emotional competency rather than emotional intelligence and people that talk about, you know, you see this in the business literature with Inc. and Fast Company and Forbes, and they're all writing about emotional intelligence. I read these articles and I just laugh because these journalists don't know what they're talking about. They just did some research on the internet and they're reforming at the end of the style of the magazine. And But there's no information there. They're, all, they're telling you what it is, but not how to do it. And they're not talking at all about the skills that you need to have, that you need to develop to have good emotional intelligence. And the other thing is people make it too hard. It's not hard. You don't have to go off to an ashram for five years and meditate. You can do this do this simply by listening to and reflecting somebody else's emotions. You will build your own emotional competency. You'll build that muscle automatically and effortlessly. Um, the, it is often the question of whether someone can gain the skills to be more emotionally intelligent because face it, we all know people who clearly don't appear to have the natural skills around it, but you've just said, if you practice it, you can actually build that intelligence. Let me tell you, uh, let me tell you about the acid test. Okay. Can you turn, can you turn a murderer into a peacemaker? And the answer is yes. I've been doing it for 12 years in the prison of peace project with my colleague, Laurel Coffer. Mm -hmm. We started in 2010 in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world with 15 women. And we taught them how to be mediators. The very first skill we taught them was how to ethically them. And that's sort of the foundational skill of our of our course. Now we're in 15 prisons in California, prison in Connecticut, 14 or 15 prisons in Greece, a prison in Italy. We've got startups in Nairobi and Denmark. I mean, it's starting to go international. Um, in California, we've had 6,000, approximately 6,000 of our students have been released on parole. Not one of them has reoffended. Not one. That is a staggering result. Congratulations. Thank you. If I can teach a murderer to be a peacemaker, what do you think I can do for you? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, congratulations. That actually, that truly is a staggering statistic. That's, that mm-hmm. is phenomenal. It's not, it's not us. It's, it's the, the men and women that we've trained who've decided yeah. to change their lives 
take these skills, work with them, learn them, and become powerful peacemakers in their communities. Yeah, wonderful. You say that uh, we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And you brought up rational and irrational before. And I just want to dive a little bit more into why you say that. So we've been living under a, 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 a false assumption of human nature for over 4,000 years. And that assumption is that what separates us from other animal species is rationality and reasoning. Plato, talk, Plato talked about this. Aristotle wrote about it. Every philosopher, every theologian um, talks about the human as a rational being. The neuroscience in the last 20 years say, uh-uh, we're not rational at all. We're totally emotional. You can't even be rational if there is such a thing as rationality, which I question. You can't even be rational first unless you're emotional first. Why? Because how would you know that you had a problem, that you had to apply the tools of rationality, unless you had an emotional experience that caused you to react to your environment? Okay. And if you go even deeper and down to the, the microscopic level in the brain, when you get when the neuron neuronal clusters that are going to be firing to make a decision, that decision is based on, is this going to give me more pain? I mean, is this going to give me more pleasure or am I going to avoid more pain? In other words, they are fundamentally emotional decisions at the neuronal level. It has nothing to do with rationality. It has to do with hedonic responses, avoidance of pain and attraction to pleasure. And that's how our brains are hardwired. Uh, and we built this whole edifice of rationality and reasoning and all this stuff. I, I asked my graduate students, give me a definition of rationality. And they can't do it. Um, because there is no definition of rationality that holds up. And even economists use the term bounded rationality to say, under very narrow guardrails in very controlled circumstances, uh, human beings can be rational. But other than that, no, no rationality at all. That's awesome. And so, so once we make this paradigm shift, of seeing ourselves as emotional beings. It's not a bad thing, it's a great thing because now all of our, our behaviors are understandable and explicable and they become predictable and the interventions become useful. You see people who are angry or upset or very emotional and say, they're just angry, emotional and upset and I know exactly what to do. I know how to say it, when to say it and, and to calm them down. I know exactly what to do, not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But as long as we give privilege to rationality over emotions, then anytime anybody gets emotions, our first knee-jerk response is to be judgmental, very irrational. Right. But that doesn't solve the problem. It does not. And saying it out loud actually makes it worse. That's right. You're being irrational. Oh, it's invalidating. <laughs> it is very invalidating. It get people really angry. So we're not 80% uh, emotional and 2% rational. If you can make that mind shift, your whole life changes for the better. Yeah. Um, just a just a like a, a post-it note for everyone who's listening. Never say you are being irrational to anyone. It does not help. <laughs> and it makes it worse. Definitely, it definitely it does. Works. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Doug, what is emotional invalidation? Oh. And why do you call it a deadly sin? First deadly sin. Mm -hmm. All right. So Allison, you remember when you were two or three years old and were you in New, New Hampshire, Durham, right? <laughs> Um, and you were running around outside and you fell down and you skinned your knee and started to bleed and you started to cry. What were you told? 
um, you're okay. Mm -hmm. Big girls don't cry. Big girls don't cry. Yep. Um, Brush brush it off. Brush it off. Rub dirt in it. It doesn't hurt. (laughs) Every single one of those statements is emotionally invalidating. You're being told to deny your hurt, your fear, your upset, your embarrassment, and your sadness, and your feeling of abandonment. In that moment that you're experiencing, you're being told all of those emotions are bad. You're not allowed to experience that. And I would guess that almost every child was, I know I was subjected to it. And the effect of emotional invalidation is to stop the emotional maturation process at usually between six and eight years old. Many, many people do not mature emotionally beyond six to eight years old. And it's at that point, it's about six years old where children start to feel agency. They can tie their shoes and take care of themselves. If they can start to think for themselves a little bit, they have some will sometimes stubbornly, and all of a sudden parents start getting frustrated because this cuddly little beautiful baby is no longer a cuddly little baby. It's a stinky little six-year-old who gets into all kinds of trouble, right? (laughs) So they start to emotionally invalidate the child to soothe their own anxiety. The child gets hurt. The child cries. The child has an emotional experience. That creates anxiety in the parent. So the parent says, stop doing that, because if you stop doing that, I'm going to feel better about myself. That's the real conversation that's going on. And we're programming of children to be emotionally incompetent. So by the time they're fed this all their lives, by the time they're 15 or 16, starting to get into dating relationships, it's a train wreck waiting to happen. And, you know, there's a lot of literature out there today, a lot of writing about how young men are not dating and they're withdrawing. I'm going to suggest to you that the reason is that they don't feel emotionally safe. They don't have emotional tools. They were emotionally invalidated all their lives as children. And they and they have no desire or no interest in engaging in an intimate relationship because it's too scary. Too much work. Because we have emotionally invalidated them. It's pervasive. It's insidious. And it's the worst thing you can do to a child in terms of brain development. But everybody does it because they don't know any better. Doug, is your book, De-Escalate, uh, I, I want to make sure I get it correct, um, De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less, would you consider that a parenting book yes. as well? Is it a leadership book? That book, the first three chapters talk about theory, the skills, the science, and then the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book takes you through the arc of life. Okay. Starting with dating relationships, and then, and then marriage, and then parenting as a chapter on pre-adolescence and a chapter on teens, how to de-escalate teens. And then it, it takes you through divorce, <laughs> and then it takes you into schools and into the workplace. So I cover the whole arc of life and give very detailed conversational examples of this is what it usually looks like. This is what it looks like if you use these tools and skills. Um, I so appreciate the arc of life, you know what I mean, in every stage. I think um, I understand the example and how to apply in an adult level, even in a leadership level or a business level, um, and, in, and in a relationship level. Do teens get to, to be, do teens need to be handled differently? Do what? Kids? Teen, teens, teens. Teenagers. Actually, a little bit. But okay. Um, um, first of all, you want to be real soft gloves when you do this. You don't want to be... You want to be very careful 
because the teens, you know, they, they, their BS detectors are on full, full alert. Mm -hmm. Most mm -hmm. teens feel emotionally unsafe. And so you start approaching them with some intimacy and they're going to freak out because they're afraid of it. So you just got to be very soft and gentle. But what I tell people, particularly when I'm teaching middle school teachers, is that if you've got a sullen 14-year-old head down and all you're getting are grunts, pretty typical, mm -hmm. you can start affect labeling that, that young person. And as long as he or she doesn't walk away, they're getting it and they want it. They just don't know how to respond. So you may not get all the response that you want, but no that they are standing there because they feel emotionally safe and they feel it. And just like you felt it at the beginning of the show, they feel it, it feels good, and they want more of it. And if you continue to affect label appropriately, pretty soon the teen's going to open up and transform and become a completely different human being. Okay. You know, I've had plenty of reports from parents saying once they started doing this properly, teens put down their phones, they got away from the game consoles, they left the television or the Netflix and everything, they wanted to be with mom and dad. Because that's what we have in nurturing. And that's the human desire. Mm -hmm. And when we provide that emotionally safe, nurturing environment for a child to be in, they want to be there because that's where that's the safest place in the world for them to be. But if we don't provide that, if we emotionally invalidate, we ridicule, we insult, we disrespect, then they're going to draw into themselves because that's the safest place for them to be. Mm -hmm. Doug, um, I, I've deeply appreciated this conversation and I just want to make sure that our listeners know the best way to find you, follow you and I what you're doing. I built a webpage for you. Say uh, that again. I said, I built a webpage for everybody. This is I the, will be sharing that webpage. Yes. That Tell us more. Get this are the people who listen to this show. Yeah. It is dougnoll.co. This is a shortened link. So it's not my website is dougnoll.com, but this link is dougnoll.co slash deliberate dash directions. Awesome. I will make sure that that is shared in our show notes. And I so appreciate you creating that page and content for us. Yep. Very much. Uh, free ebook. You can order my book, Deescalate, and my online courses are available on that page. Plus a whole Wonderful. bunch of Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for your insights today on how to de-escalate any, anyone in 90 seconds or less. What, what in a magical tool that will be for people who um, have listened all the way through. You're welcome.